You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Well, the Broadway season may be closed. The Tony Awards may not be happening. But all month long, we're going to be talking about Broadway. Today begins a four-part series looking at previous Tony Award nominees. Up first, Broadway producer Hal Luftig, who talks about a show that was to have opened this year, Plaza Suite, as well as Avita, Kinky Boots, and the biggest disappointment of his Broadway producing career. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. I never regret being part of a production, never. I'm disappointed at their, you know, reception, but I think the biggest one for me that was, was heartbreaking was Children of a Lesser God. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we feature conversations with fellow creatives about the realities of a career in the arts. The website is winmepodcast.com and the email address it at gmail.com. So what exactly is a Broadway producer to do when there's no Broadway to produce? Producer Hal Luftig and I talk about this and much more today on the podcast. In fact, he's won four Tony Awards and two Olivier Awards, so he certainly knows what it takes to make a great production. Previous guests on the podcast have starred in some of his productions. John McGinty in Children of a Lesser God, James Monroe Shtevko from Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, and Caroline Bowman and Jay Harrison G. from Kinky Boots. And so Hal and I talk about really what goes into producing those shows long before an actor is even thought of or cast in the show. That even goes for his most recent production, Plaza Suite, which was to have opened on Broadway last month, starring Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. It would have been their first time on stage together in almost 20 years. But certainly the coronavirus has put a different spin on what it means to produce on Broadway, or just theater in general. And even in the making of this podcast, usually I go to the offices or bring the guests here to my home and we're able to talk face to face. But Zoom has become the way to record these days. And that not only goes for podcasting, but it goes for producer meetings as well. Which is weird when you when you think about, I know, you know why we have to, but so much of what we do happens when we were in the room together, you know, the flying of ideas or the how about this or let's not do that. You know, everything from casting to marketing to, you know, you go to an agency and they show you the layout of artwork and now they're like holding it up, you know, to a camera. It's like, okay, so it's a little, I think it's a little tougher on this industry than for perhaps other industries where it does you know it doesn't really matter as much if you're together and and what we do as an industry you know you can't do on a computer you can't i know and i'm thrilled that people are streaming and live casting different performances and stuff but you know it doesn't compare to sitting in a theater watching actors on that stage and you as an audience and being collective having a socially collective response um, that's what, I, in my opinion, makes theater so wonderful and unique. 
And in this time of theater closings, it's great that Zoom and other online avenues have opened up for us actors and singers and directors and producers to actually put something on screen for us to watch and enjoy. But Hal makes a great point that the screen will never replace that live in-person interaction that we get both being on stage with fellow actors, but also with the audience itself. One of my favorite audience experiences was watching Hello, Dolly. Bette Midler had gone and Donna Murphy had taken over and I was there on one Sunday matinee and the audience was absolutely electric. It must have been a lot of theater folk that were there that day because as soon as she walked on stage, there was a roar. Every single musical number had uproarious applause and it was just, it was absolutely electric to be in that room and you could just feel the love, not only of the show, but just the love of theater, of being there and experiencing such a wonderful performance. Right. It went crazy and you can't help but that, uh, feel that. And, you know, that's what's so heartbreaking specifically, personally to me is Plaza Suite. You know, we did have three weeks up in Boston uh, which was usually hugely successful, but we were able to see the audience's reaction. I mean, comedy on a computer is not going to be funny. You know, you need to hear other people laugh, and the actors need that. So uh, it, there's a great example where live streaming that performance, even if we could, uh, would just not be the same thing. You know, the joke, you, what made that so funny in the theater was hearing other people, you know, laughing. It's like, you'll excuse the expression, it's contagious. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We all as actors know that each night is different and that a certain joke will land and another joke won't land right. and vice versa. Right. So each night is really different depending on that audience. Yeah. Great point. Right. They don't worry about that when they, they make a film. It is what it is, what it is. And you can, you know, whether you're watching it at home or in the theater or wherever it is you are, you know, it's it's that kind of what you just described, you know, that energy between actor and stuff. That doesn't happen in film. So know? right now, what is the status with Plaza Suite? What's, what's its trajectory at this point? We are all in a holding pattern. Um, you know, uh, uh, I would like to say I'm the most disappointed, but I know that Sarah and Matthew are are equally um, bummed because they were actually having a really great time. Uh, you know, it's the first time they've worked together on stage in over 20 years, and and the, that was just how to succeed when she came in for you know a short week, a short engagement, several week engagement, um, and they've never really wanted to work together before. Uh, so there, there is bummed. What we're hoping for, and this is, again, the world we live in, is depending on when we are allowed to come back and then gauging, you know, will audiences, how long will that take? You know, we, we can't be delusional and think that we're going to just throw open a theater door and they're going to come in. You know, it's going to take time for people to feel comfortable and, and you know, a safe about not being the six feet stuff. And uh, so what's happening is when we get the green light, we'll, we will reassess, figure out how many weeks we have left. Um, uh, you know, they had personal commitments at the end of August. So uh, 
we'll look at it. And if there's a not enough weeks to play, to perform where it makes fiscal sense, we will then perhaps look at the possibility of just postponing it and finding another 17-week chunk of time when they're available and, you know, do it then. Yeah. Um, and to kind of dig into to the numbers, uh, you know, being a producer with with the, you know, this kind of unknown future with this break, how does that affect the, the financing of it? Is it basically the budget stops and then you can just hold it or is money still being produced on it or how, how does that work? That's a great question, Patrick. And um, with Plaza Suite, you know, you raise a certain amount of money. You have to spend it pre-performance. You know, you have to build the sets, you have to make the costumes, you have to load it into the theater, all of which we have done. It's the lovely, beautiful set. Um, it is beautiful. It is just sitting in the Hudson Theater. And um, it does really look like a hotel suite. So I'm like, maybe I'll go live there for a while. because you know. <laughs> um, So, yeah, those funds have been spent. What we have left, you know, is the reserve. We're now not spending on advertising as we would. So there is a chunk of money that is still available. Um, and we do have some costs, you know, equity, the ruling came down, you know, that productions are responsible for two weeks of salary and health benefits, um, those kinds of things. There's a, there are some expenses. Um and we're trying to, this is what's going to make uh, or break a show, whether they can come back or not. And I do unfortunately think that many, many a show, when this is all over, are not going to be able to return. Um, uh, only because, yeah. you know, if a show is already running and we're having this last week too, people are, um, you know, they're trying to stave it off. In, in Plaza Suite, we have uh, a lot more exchanges than refunds because people are really, really love them and have made special plans to see them, whether it be travel or made an event, you know, someone's birthday. Um, so, so we are better at the moment than most uh, because we still have a lot in the bank. Shows, maybe longer running shows or shows that, that uh, you know, we're doing okay on a week-to-week -week basis, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when we reopen, they're going to have nothing really or very little in the bank. Um, so they're going to need to assess whether they take the risk and just say, you know, okay, let's open with zero advance, you know, and, and uh take the chance, roll the dice, because, you know, the minute you start performances, you have your weekly operating costs. If you're not selling enough or have enough to fall back on, you know, how, how do you open? How, how big of a risk do you want to take? You know, if it takes a while for the audience to come back, a show that's, you know, sort of teetering, you could lose easily a half a million dollars in a week. Do you really want to take that mm. risk? You know, and then you make the argument, do you is it realistic to think that you're going to catch fire again in one week of performances? This thing may take, you know, several weeks or, or months till we get revved back up uh, to where we were now. Yeah, and that actually brings up a, a point. When it comes to producing, 
you know, the, the stat is that most shows don't recoup their cost. And so how is it or what is it that keeps you going as a producer since most shows don't make their money back? I, I, uh, I know that's the thought or the mindset that goes around, but I'm here to tell you that's not exactly true. You know, somehow we have devised this notion of defining a hit or a flop, whether they recruit, you know, their investment or even make a profit on Broadway. There are so many shows now that, you know, don't recruit fully on Broadway, but they have the road, they have licensing, in some cases, they have streaming income um, to to fall back on. So the I, you know, it, it does make me kind of chuckle a little bit that as an industry, we have done very little to correct that, you know, the misinformation. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Hollywood makes a movie and it doesn't work, and they burn. You know, they spend two hundred forty million dollars. And everybody's like, okay, oops. You know, and, you know, when you look at the statistics of film, it's much higher. Because like I said, when how many, especially huh. nowadays, when there's so much competing for, for what film competes to, you know, these TVs, but, you know, every network has a new show and there's so much, you know, product out there, if you will, that films are struggling, really, really struggling um, to how to get people into a movie theater or make it well enough known that people will watch it, you know, on a, on a Netflix or something like that. Um, so they go down with a lot more percentage than we do. And when they do go down, like I said, you know, I'm not being flippant about losing $15 million on a musical or something like that, but that compare that to 150 million, 200 million, you hear these numbers right. and they're staggering. And everybody, you know, so it, it is a little, a little raw nerve with me um, because we don't, we don't do a whole lot to correct that misinformation. So I hope I'm doing it live on your show. When a show doesn't work and I could name several um, that they didn't recruit on Broadway. So they're a flop. But yet they did a tour, they did licensed companies, they did uh, 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 all the foreign productions, um, they did now with this capturing and then you know streaming it on Broadway HD, for example. All of that generates income, and all of that goes eventually to the bottom line of the recruitment. So many shows do end up coming out fully recouped with a profit sometimes, but on Broadway, you know, they're considered a big flop because they close without recouping. Now, the show that we worked on together, Avito, did that follow that same process where the, the Broadway company didn't recoup, but then it went out on the road with us? Absolutely. And that's exactly, it's a great example because that's exactly what happened on Broadway uh, we came like to 96 or 7% of recouping. And then we had a tour and that made money. And that money, the profits of that, you know, as the business works, the mother company has paid a portion of profit from the road. It's a separate legal entity, but it does pay the mother company a certain percentage of profit. That alone made new, the, the Broadway company recoup and then the tour, you know, recouped. In that case, though, you know, uh, as I just said, you know, other productions of it, 
um, because it was a revival, uh, even though Michael Brandage's production was completely different than Hal Prince's production, when a Vita is, you know, licensed out, you know, it's usually given that credit is given to the Hal Prince production and not more. So it, it is, um, you know, and it's, that's not unique specifically, but, uh, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber and at the time Hal Prince and all of the writers were still alive and they were like, you know, screw the revival, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a my show. And if you've seen, you were in it, so you know, and if you saw the original, it was completely different. Yeah. But we don't derive, you know, any income from subsidiary rights, as they're called. Now, with the Avita show, if I remember correctly, it began in London's West End. Because every Broadway season, we have two or three transplants from London. What is that like bringing it across the pond? Well, this is, this is a, it's a great question, because it also will point to why theater takes so long to, you know, come to fruition. So I saw that production six years before we actually landed mm. in New York. And I, I ran up to Rob Ashford um, when I saw him and I said, Rob, you didn't ask me, but I'm telling you, I'm producing a Vita on Broadway. And uh, I was just enamored with it. And I was enamored with her, Elena, because she, at that time, um, she flew herself over from Buenos Aires to London, did not speak English, learned the songs and some of the dialogue phonetically, um, and really was Ava Perón. She had this fire in her belly that I'm going to make it. You know, I'm, I'm this, you know, uh, Argentinian actress, but I'm going to make this role my own. And, uh, that's that fire in her belly is what captured Andrew Lloyd Webber's and Rob Ashford and Michael Brandage's attention. And they said, that's our Ava. She is exactly as a human being, what the role calls for in between the time that it, and it took six years for me to get it to Broadway because Michael Brandage's, you know, don't forget he was running the Donmar at the time. His schedule was booked for three years hence. And then uh, Rob's was sort of booked too. And we, then when we settled on Ricky Martin, he was two years with touring engagements. And then we had to wait a year for a theater. So, you know, whoops, all of a sudden it's six years. Um, and, you know, I think in the case of Avita, everyone's life had changed in that six year span, you know, um, and, and, it just, it took a different, it wasn't as urgent as it had been in London. That's what we all kind of responded to. There was a, this is what's happening now. And six years later, as you know, the whole world changes. Right. Uh, it's one of the, one of the shows I am most proud of um, because I've always, A, I've always loved the Vita, but Rob and Michael found different particles that were so different than what Hal and, and Andrew had done in the first go around. Um, you know, if for nothing else, when the first production happened, the concept of a celebrity becoming a politician for us, you know, was unheard of. Um, that started to change. Our first person like that was Ronald Reagan. He was 
film star that then became, you know, a, quite a big politician. Up until that point, we never had experience like that. We, the, the idea of that, that someone who was a movie star or had a television show would go on to like be a, the president of the United States was like whacked. You know, no one would have thought that. And now we had in our revival, what we were trying to show was the populism, you know, can actually make a B-level actress, Ava, not Elena, Ava, <laughs> um, one of the most important figures in a country, you know, and she used that to become, you know, um, the Ava Perot. Now, you're touching on it a little bit, but in a broader sense, what is it then that attracts you to a production? What is that it factor that makes you want to go up to a director and say, I'm going to produce this? You know, it, you know, that is a really great question. And when I see it, it's easier than when I read it or I, I'm being pitched a concept. When I saw, like I said, I was predisposed to Love of Vida. It, was, it ha always was and always has been one of my favorite shows. And when I saw it in London and saw the, 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 what Michael had mined in a new way to tell the story and make it almost more relevant, if you will, I just, it just, I fell in love with it. And I sat there and going, I got to do this. I got It's that little voice that produces sometimes here. I got to do this. I got to do this. And, you know, I went up and I, you know, tackled him to the floor and said, I'm doing this show without giving any thought to at the moment, who's going to be in it? Do we need, you know, do you need to get a star? And who would that star be? And, you know, when, as it like laid itself out and Ricky Martin uh, presented himself, we thought that would be really cool. We have a, you know, a Latin guy playing a Latin character, uh, two of them, as a matter of fact, Elena and, and we thought this, it lent an authenticity to it that, um, you know, we never had before. I had never seen before. And that's what attracted me to it. I thought, God, this is relevant, you know, and um, I just, you know, wanted to do it. And so when it comes to new works, what is that? What is that piece? Obviously, a revival, you at least have some concept of what it can be right. or could be. Right. What happens with a new work? As they're being developed, the first question I always ask myself is, would I want to see this? Would I want to see it? Would I want to bring my family to see it, my friends to see it? If the answer is no, I've learned over the years, let the project go. It may turn out to be successful, but if it doesn't like speak to you in that way, it's just going to be laborious. Mm. You know, it, you have to, you have to love it and have a passion for it um, that runs so deep that you don't even think about Oh shit! I gotta raise the money. Oh my god! How are we gonna, you know, how are we gonna get a composer? What's the trajectory of the show? Um, you just somehow those go out of your mind, and you just say, "I'm gonna do it." Later in the process, I'm sure everyone does. You hit your head on them and go, "What the hell was I thinking?" But you know, you still love the project. So uh, I think for me, the first question do i want would i want to see that do i love it does it speak to me my friends that kind of thing um and if it passes that test then the second one is okay why this show why now what's its relevancy what's its message you know who would want to hear that message you know that kind of stuff yeah and then the rest just follows 
And so in thinking back to, you know, your, your first days of producing until now, how has your approach to producing changed over those years? You know, every show I do, um, hit, flop, and anything in between, I try to learn something. And I consider it personally successful if I can take a learning experience from that show and apply it to the next one. Um, so I think, you know, from the beginning of uh, when I started producing to where I am now, I think um, it's like an encyclopedia now of, you know, what I know or what to look out for. Uh, everything from size, cast of size, to orchestra, to um, being being very aware of how many stagehands it would take, you know, to run that show. Um, those kind of the weekly costs, the capitalization costs, and knowing where to look to see where some of the uh, sand traps are. Um, mm. And I've learned that over the years, you know, to to be able to see that, have a conversation with the artistic team, you know, to, I know I'm exaggerating here, but to say, you know, if you have dancing waters on the stage, it's going to affect X, Y, and Z. And uh, do we really need that? Or is there a more economical, more, or even artistic way of telling that story? You know, sometimes the the more artistic way of telling it is not just throwing money at it, but coming up with something really uber creative, um, you know, on, on how to tell that story. It is one of the things I love most about our production of Vito. So, you know, we, it's always good for me to know, have the experience to know where I should look, because at some point, any producer has to look at the overall budget. You know, that's why I've developed my podcast called Broadway Biz, because, you know, I want to talk to listeners and other people about the uh, notion that everything that happens, you know, in front of the footlights, behind the footlights, you know, affect you know, the business part of show. It's very important that we keep that in mind. It is a show business. Yeah. And so it sounds like you as the producer are the the practical voice uh, on, on the shoulder of the creative team to certainly give them free reign to do what they need to do, but also keep them within a bounds right. that can keep the show running. Right. And the trick there is to... Uh, you never want an artistic team to feel like you're just denying them something. You're just being the bad parent saying, no, you know, um, that doesn't, in my opinion, foster a really great creative relationship, but rather to work with the team. So everyone feels like they're heard. Everyone feels like that their concerns are being taken care of and yet letting, having them understand the economics, you know, of it. Um, it's, I know there are some producers that are like me and they do do that. And there are some that just say, no, you know, the answer is no, you know, hmm. um, I'm just not going to do it. Um, you know, I kind of like to say to a director, whomever, set designer, I'm not picking on directors, you know, the question, okay, here's our budget. Like if you had a personal budget and you wanted to, you know, you had budgeted for for tuna fish, but hey, I want to see this beautiful fillet I want. Where is that money going to come from? 
eventually, you know, you just have so much. And so where do you, where do you spread it? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, have said this many times. Sure, sure, sure. You, you know, you can have the dancing waters on stage, but you know, it's going to come from somewhere. So, you know, that's all you're going to have on stage. You realize that. <laughs> so <laughs> approaching it that way does help everybody feel, you know, a collective sense of creativity doing it. Yeah. And so that actually brought up a question of mine that I've wondered, and I know other fellow actors, when it comes to especially bigger productions like 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 on Broadway, off-Broadway, who is it exactly that has that final say? Does it go into the director and we let the director, or is it you, the producer, or is it a collaboration between the two? You know, <laughs> you had a director sitting right next to me, I'm thinking one in particular <laughs> that I've with. He would probably say something different. But, you know, my answer is, you know, it's with the producer. You know, we're sort of like a producer, sort of like a CEO of a company. You know, and the director is like, or a team, you know, the owner of a baseball team. And the, the director is the manager of that team. You know, he picks the players and all that kind of stuff. And he makes a lot of the decisions. But if it has to go up to the CEO at the end of the day, you know, it's the producer who makes that decision. Right, because you're trying to balance that financial aspect and the creative aspect. And are there times... Obviously, the hope is to balance both of them equally, but is there time when one, like, like, for example, have you ever said, you know what, that's so good, that's so creative, we'll find the money for it? Yes, I have. But here's a lesson learned from that. Most, I'm going to say 99% of the times that I do what you just said, uh, brought into the notion that that's the only way we can tell the story. And when I say we'll find the money for that, usually... It doesn't work. You know, the, what mm. we found the money for was something that, you know, actually wasn't totally necessary. Um, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here when, you know, an example of this was when we did Thoroughly Modern Millie. And we all agreed that if they make, if Millie and Mistority can only make the elevator work by tap dancing it to get it to run, we have to have an elevator, you know, we just have to. And the elevator has to be functional. It has to go up. You know, you have to see it working, going up as they tap dance. That's, you know, it's in the script. We have to have it. And we, so we did, uh, I bought into it too. It was over a million dollars to build and put in. Oof. And this is a le lesson I've learned. It was four extra stage hands to run that elevator because of safety issues and, you know, and making sure that the actors were safe and the, the machinery was safe. And the first time we ran it, you know, everyone agreed, the director said, you know, it needs to move faster. We can't spend 20 minutes, you know, watching this thing inch up into the, into the flies. And he was told, well, that's as fast. It's not a real elevator. It's a set elevator, and this is as fast as you can go. And you know, at that point, you know, the director said, "Well, maybe we should cut it because it, it's taking too long." You know, I mean, an audience can't sit there for fifteen minutes watching this thing go. Uh, 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 you know, it was one of those things where I had to say, um, "This has got put us way over budget." And so I don't care if we have to sell rides on it after the show; we are using it. You know? Right. 
So, uh, you know, yeah, that happens more than not in my experience. Yeah. It's something that you all believe you have to have. And then, you know, when it goes out on tour or when you see it actually operational, you go, you know what? It's not exactly what I thought it was. Mm. And yet you've spent the money. While it is somewhat easy to define a producer by that financial business aspect of theater, there's actually so much more that goes into producing a show than just raising the funds and making sure everyone stays on budget. There's a creative and artistic aspect to it that cannot be forgotten, because at the heart of it, every producer is a theater-goer. They watch things, they read things, and they want to then produce those things. Whether it's running up to Rob Ashford and saying, I have to produce this, or finding a little independent art film called Kinky Boots. Um, You know what? The story of that was... um, when I, I started independently the film while I was in London, um, I always try and leave when I go over there, you know, everyone's running around seeing shows at meetings. I always try to leave one afternoon to go to, as they call it, the cinema. You know, and partly I do because, you know, you can see British films, Indian films, you know, specialty films that you don't get here in the U.S., like I never saw the point of going to see a James Bond movie in London when I could see it, you know, here. So I always would look for something I couldn't see. I saw Calendar Girls that way, and I saw a, a Bollywood film that way. Um, so this one, you know, day I saw this film called Kinky Boots in Leicester Square, and I thought I'd never heard of that. And it's a British film; it probably isn't going to come over. So I went to see it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was just this heartwarming story about, you know, a guy who saved this company. And I didn't think much about it. Uh, And a few weeks after I got home, Daryl Roth uh, called me and asked me for lunch, which, you know, wasn't unusual because we have lunch, you know, quite a bit. And usually just gossip and how are you and that kind of thing. Towards the end of the lunch, she said, you know, I, I, I do have a question. Uh, I saw this film at Sundance and I think would make a great film. And as she was saying it, I remember rolling my eyes because I was in the throes of Legally Blonde at that time, if you remember. Um, oh, right. I was thinking like enough of the musical movie, you know, movie to stage adaptations. And um, I said, sure, what, you know, what's the title of it? And she said, well, I know you've never heard of it before, but it's called Kinky Boots. And I almost leapt over the table. I said, Daryl, I did see it. And you are absolutely right. It is a great idea for a film because it had all those key elements that a musical needs to have. You you have a, a character who starts out at the beginning of the show wanting something or thinking he wants something or she wants something. And, and along the way learns what, that what she or he thought, you know, they wanted uh, was the wrong goal. And they've learned what is really important. And they've also uh, taught other people that message too. And so it had all of those, you know, those markers for a great musical. And so I immediately said, Daryl, let's do it. And, you know, off and running. And when we when we did say that, I, I did say, Daryl, there's only one person I think of that can really direct this is Jerry Mitchell. 
And so we, uh, we showed him the film and he loved it too. And he said, you know, yeah, I would do it. And then we had to set out to find the creative team. Um, and I have to, you know, tell you that it was originally, it wasn't Harvey or Cindy. And um, although we really wanted Harvey because we thought, you know, that would be great, but he initially said, no, thank you, because I've written that story before. Mm. And, and so we, you know, kind of moved on and nobody that we came up with met the, like, that's a great idea of Harvey Firestein because he just gets it. So Jerry said to him, Harvey, watch the film again with me. And let's look at it together. And I'll show you why I think there's a good film. And they realized at the point, at that point, it wasn't like Lacage or anything else, but it was a story about how, you know, we try to please our parents, in this case, Charlie pleasing his father or Lola, you know, disappointing, um, um, you know, her father, his father. And, you know, and that's when Harvey said, that's a story I'm interested in telling. And so he came on board. Um, and again, we had different music writers at um, God Bless Harvey. After six months of working, he said, look, to the Daryl and I, we're not writing the same show. We just aren't, I can tell you. And we can mm. work on this for the next millennium. And we're never going to be writing the same show. So here's you either, you know, let's find another composer or, you know, I will gracefully say, you know, step back. And of course we want the Harvey. So when, uh, I, I'll never to this day when uh, uh, Harvey said, you know, and I have somebody who I think would be great. He said, don't, before I tell you, just don't dismiss it out of hand. And we said, who? And he said, Cindy Law. Uh, I remember, you know, initially going, are you, what? And then I thought, you know what? That is a really interesting idea. So we had a meeting, um, you know, an initial meeting in Daryl's office that mm -hmm. to the day I die, I'm going to be so sorry I didn't record because you have to picture this. This is Jerry, myself, Daryl, Harvey, and Cindy. And, you know, he talks like this and she talks like this and they're talking over each other the entire <laughs> meeting. They were just not, you know, and, and you know, I don't know what my face looked like. I'm sure it was the same as Daryl's, but we were, had that, what, well, you know, WTF is going on here. And I just wish I had filmed it. Just that, that five minute section of like pure cacophony. And was it them, was it them bouncing ideas off of each yeah, other? Or just talking over each other. And yeah, like, you know, yeah, bouncing ideas or here's what I think the story is, but together and those two voices you know, together, you have to imagine it. Was just like, you know, as a as a listener, you were like, "What? I don't even know where to look." You know, <laughs> let alone listen. It was just, it was just. Um, I'm going to call it organized mayhem, but it all turned out okay, right? You know, and Harvey was great at teaching Cindy the basic tenets um, of writing a song, and Jerry was, you know, terrific at explaining to her that. You know, uh, sometimes a song is broken up with some dialogue to help emphasize the message of the song. Because the first time she heard that, you know, Jerry had staged where there was part of the song and then talking. And, and Cindy was like, what the hell did you just do? You just ruined my song. You broke it up and there's no talking. And, you know, he had to explain that sometimes it helps 
you know, move the story along or the song along. So there was a lot of fun in that show and a lot of learning curve. But uh, as I said, all turned out okay. Yeah. Now, not all of your shows, of course, have had the success of, of Kinky Boots. And um, what is a show that, that comes to mind as far as, you know, a show that was a, a challenge, a disappointment to you? Um, I never regret being part of a production, never, because I only go into them. I'm disappointed at their, you know, reception. But I think what you're asking, the biggest one for me that was, was heartbreaking was Children of a Lesser God. Mm. Um, again, having seen the original, uh, you know, I, I loved it then, I enjoyed it then, but we now live in a place, a time where I thought it was uber relevant. You know, it was, it was during the, you know, the Black Lives Matter and, you know, who listens to who and how do we listen? And, you know, do we feel that we're superior to other people when we listen, you know, not just because of race, just because of either gender or, you know, whatever it might be. And Kenny Leon um, also recognized that and he wanted to make that story be just about that. Like, who, who do we listen to? And, you know, at the end of that play, our, our male protagonist, you know, James, um, when he forces her, and it was one of the most powerful things I've ever seen on stage, when he forces um, Sarah, who is chose, is deaf, but chose not to speak um, for her life. And interestingly, the actress who played her, Lauren Ridloff, did make that choice when she was 13. You know, I'm not going to speak. If a person wants to speak to me, they need to learn at least basic sign language. Why is my language any different you know, than others, you know, you wouldn't go to France and, you know, demand that they learn English, although there are some people that do. But, um, you know, it just wouldn't be right. And so when the scene happens where, you know, he shakes her and he says, damn it, if you want to talk to me, speak, you know, speak. And she utters this heartbreaking sound, mm. you know, says, are you happy now? This is what I sound like and leaves him. And, uh, you know, he, Kenny, the way Kenny thought about it was this challenge of, you know, whose language do we listen to? And, and you know, who, you know, the whole show, this character of James feels superior to her. I can speak, I can do this, I, you know. And, you know, at the end of it, he comes to realize, you know, I've been just as bad as everybody else because I'm forcing her to speak my language, as opposed to trying to really learn her. So I love the show. I love the message. I love the fact that we were creating something that really spoke to the deaf community. Mm -hmm. And it uh, just was not well received at the time. And, and we had great performances. That was heartbreaking. Because I had John McGinty on the podcast right. uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, he was he was a joy to speak to, and he really I think him himself as a deaf actor grew and and really appreciated that role and its message as as you were saying because yeah. it because you're right it's more than just about deaf versus hearing it is a larger concept of who are we listening to why are we talking to people why do we talk over people or demand I think you're you're right it's a much bigger issue than just hearing and non-hearing. Exactly. And, and I was so impressed with Kenny because he took a play 
that was written in 1980 when the times were completely different, you know, and made it relevant without changing a word, made it, you know, relevant where we live. And don't forget, you know, like I said, it was Black Lives Matter. Um, it was just at the very beginning of Me Too, you know. Um, so, you know, the, all at once the production dealt with, you know, racial issues, women, you know, you know, issues, me, you know, uh, Me Too, um, especially, you know, and, and people who uh, have felt marginalized their whole life, like a lot of people do. And um, I thought it said a lot, so it's, uh, it, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But I don't regret any show, and I definitely don't regret doing that show. Well, it, it was a beautiful show. I, I did happen to see it, and you're right, that moment where where the, the subtitles go away, and it's just her, just uh, like, it's a guttural sound yeah. that comes out of her. It is, it's just, it's so powerful. I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the, the, probably the most pivotal moment in the show that I remember from watching it. As I said, what, you know, and a few minutes ago, is that Lauren made that decision not to not to try and learn to speak um you know up until that point you know when uh, deaf children were forced to go to a school where their mission was to you know uh, force them to speak as best they could you know um through vibrations and lip reading and all that kind of stuff and lauren um, at 13 said, mm -mm, you know what? I have a language. I can speak. It's called sign language. And so she stopped actually using her, her vocal cords. And I remember the very first reading we had, just to see the way when she had to come to that scene because she had not used her vocal cords. Um, it was hard to almost hear her because she had, no, you know, she had no practice in moving the diaphragm. Hmm. But I, I, the, what just, and I, when I think about it, I get choked up. That day in that room, uh, we did two, you know, we did a rehearsal and then um, we did an actual reading for, you know, the Woodbees. And so when we did the rehearsal, Kenny Leon said to Lauren, when we get to that place where you're supposed, don't do it. Don't do it. We'll just, you know, you mime it and we'll pretend you're doing it. You know, um, I'd rather you do it tomorrow. So, you know, when, when it's the important uh, day. And she got to that place and she made this guttural sound. And first of all, her mother was in the reading and you could hear her mother sobbing because she had not heard her daughter's voice in over, over 13 years. And Joshua just like backed up and he was, he was just taken and he started like weeping, but realized I got to keep my, I have a line here. So, <laughs> you know, he, to watch him try to keep his cool and composure while everyone in that room was just, was just bawling their eyes out. Um, it, it, it was really a, one of those theatrical days I will never, ever forget. It's, it was, I remember thinking, thank God I can do what I do. And thank God I'm here in this room witnessing this. Um, because it was just, it's a theatrical memory that will never, that image will never, will be forever seared in my brain.
Mm. I, I kind of teared up as you said it too. It's it, it. I mean, it just sounds powerful. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing to see, and and um, you know, it's just the way the business goes. We did a production of it up at the Berkshires where we got a pretty good notice. You know, it wasn't a full review. It was, it was, uh, you know, one of those combined reviews. But we of the three shows that were combined, we heads, and, you know, came out heads and you know heads and tails above the others uh, not that you want to compare but it was a very encouraging review so we moved on uh, to that and turns out the same critic with the same show and the same you know just tore it apart hmm. and you know once you have that it's hard it's hard yeah. to do continue so what we tried we gave it the balance fight and you know she was uh, nominated for for a tony award um, and, uh, you know, we were completely looked over in every, we would pass over in every other category. Like, how do you not nominate Joshua Jackson for just that role? How do you not nominate Kenny Leon for creating, you know, the show that became relevant? But the, the answer is we didn't. And I struggled with trying to keep that show alive, at least through the Tonys. Um, but, you know, I have a fiscal responsibility to the investors and and also the actors. It, I didn't want them walking out there to a half-empty house. That, that, right. that's, that's awful. They deserve better than that. Um, so we had to make the tough decision of closing a few weeks before the Tony. Um, you know, and just sadly, hard you know, hard as it was, I think everyone ultimately understood what it was and. Um, in show business, uh, in the end, you know, like you say, the producer has the final say. The the business kind of takes over, and if you if you have no money, then you have no show. That's what it comes down to. I'm not trying to, you know, and I want to demystify the fact that you know the big bad producer is always after the almighty buck, but it is a business. Yeah, you know, be fiscally responsible with their money, and not just you know burn through it to show I can. It's always a hard tightrope for a producer to walk. Thank you so much for joining me today. To learn more about how, you can go to the show notes, and there you'll find links to his website as well as social media. You'll also see links to the various episodes of actors that I've spoken with from his productions, both on and off Broadway. On the next episode, I'll be speaking with Broadway composer and lyricist Andrew Lippa. We'll not only talk about Wild Party, Adam's Family, and Big Fish, but I'll also be asking him your questions. Those of you who saw my Instagram story and responded with your own questions of what to ask Andrew. All that is coming up next week. But coming up first, don't miss the final five questions with Hal Luftig. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a single episode of the podcast, especially this month as we continue to talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 